He came in the doors of the church shouting, they have it, they have it. I haven't seen him more excited about anything. He was overcome with joy and excitement, and there Derek was standing, almost jumping up and down. He was so excited. And I said, they have what? And he said, the best beverage ever. I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, big red. And I thought he was talking about the bubblegum. Like, that's the only big red I'd ever known of. He's like, no, 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 no. Big red is the best drink ever. Now, I'm not trying to imply that Derek doesn't have the most refined palate. I'm just flat out stating Derek does not have the most refined palate. This is a man who in a span of 16 days ate 33 microwavable burritos, okay? These are the ones you take straight out of the little plastic wrap, pop in the microwave, heat up for 45 seconds, and the mystery meat and cheese all kind of melts together and is supposed to be a burrito, and that's what the man ate, 33 of those for lunch in a 16-day stretch. So I'm not exactly saying that Derek only feasts on the finer things. So there was a little bit of skepticism within me when he said, this is the best drink ever, Big Red, and he'd found it. And he went out to his car and he opened up a 12-pack and he brought in a can and he took out two cups and he popped the top open and I said, well, what does it taste like? And he said, deliciousness. And I said, no, but what, what is it? It's like, I can't describe it. You just have to have some. And he opened the can and he poured it into our two cups, and then he started swirling it around, and he brought the cup up to his nose, and he sniffed. I thought we were at a fine wine tasting, watching the man go to work, and he took and he cheers the two glasses that he had, and he gave me one. He said, taste it. And I, I took a drink, and it, it wasn't bad. It was, it was actually pretty good. It's, if you haven't had Big Red, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's a combination of classic bubblegum meets some vanilla flavoring, and then there's still some mystery in there. I, I think maybe a little orange, I don't know, maybe a little orange, I can't really tell you, um, but Derek was in his happy place as he was having just the drink that he loved from Texas, and he found it here, Big Red, but as somebody who'd never had it before, after I, after I drank it, I understood why he couldn't just describe it, because it's it's just so unique. It's hard to describe. Sometimes in life, it's really difficult to describe things until people experience them. This is one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of cooking shows. I, I don't get to taste the food. So you can tell me all day that something's great and something else is, is horrible. But as somebody who doesn't get to sample it, it's just really hard for me to, to listen to that uh, description. This morning, as we continue our look at heaven... We're going to be looking at a couple passages, and one of them is, is Luke chapter 16. So if you have your phones or your tablets, we invite you to follow along with us there in the, in the Bible app as we're going to be looking at Luke 16, starting in verse 19. And this is a teaching that Jesus had on two different individuals. And this is a passage that we have to scratch our heads about. And there's a lot of debate whether or not this is a parable. And a parable is a story. Whether or not Jesus is just using a fictional story to convey a point, or whether or not this is an actual occurrence that Jesus is using to describe the afterlife. And if it is a parable, then we still need to 
we still need to understand the heart of what Jesus is trying to convey to us. And if it is an actual story, then obviously we, we need to listen to it accordingly. But we aren't really sure. And there's a lot of debate. A lot of it seems to be like a parable, but there are some features in it that are unique to this that aren't found in any other parable. So we just don't know. What we do know is that Jesus chose to use these words to talk about the life to come. And as such, we who are followers of Jesus, and we obviously haven't experienced these things, we should listen to them and see what we can take from it. So we're going to start today in Luke 16, starting in verse 19, where we read these words. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, what we see here is that at the start of this example, there is a rich man who was clothed in purple, and to us that may not seem like a big deal. Somebody who wears purple day in and day out, we might think they're trying to be like a prince wannabe, but other than that, we wouldn't really understand why somebody's wearing purple every single day. But in this culture, purple was a status symbol. Purple was a sign. Any dye was expensive, but purple dye was the most expensive dye you could find, which meant if you had purple garments, let alone wore purple garments day in and day out, you were affluent. This is somebody who has, who has wealth and affluence. There's somebody who matters. They're rich. They have power. They are a big deal. They're clothed in purple. They're clothed in fine linen. They have designer threads. Everything that they wear, everything that they own is top of the line. It's the best of the best. Everybody who sees this person knows there's an individual who's well-connected, and there's an individual who is well-off. They're rich, extraordinarily wealthy. And not only do they have the best clothes, not only do they have the most, the most showy and the best quality clothing, but, they feast, but he feasted sumptuously every day five-star chef at his service. We're talking filet mignon. We're talking lobster. We're talking if he was a vegetarian. I See, that's the thing. I don't know. If you're a vegetarian, what do you do? Upgrade your salad to a kale salad? Woohoo! Okay, so, you know, I'm not really sure what you do if you're a vegetarian. But whatever it is, whatever it is, he's eating just the finest of foods, no leftovers, never having to worry about reheating anything in the microwave that you don't really want, because we all know, unless it's chili or lasagna, it's just not as good a couple days later. I mean, chili and lasagna, they're even better a couple days later. Not really sure what's going on in the fridge with those two that isn't going on with anything else. But he doesn't have to worry about leftovers. Whatever he wants to order, he's got the chef on call. He's ordering it. He's ordering whatever he wants to eat. That's just how his life is. He is rich. He is well taken care of. He has the life that we would look at and say, that's the dream. He's living the dream. He gets to do what he wants. He has everything that he wants taken care of. We would look at it and say, that is a good life. How I'd, that's how I'd want my life to go. But Jesus continues. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus draws the contrast for us. Right off the bat, there is this rich man. He is clothed in the finest of clothing. 
He eats the finest foods. Jesus even drives, drives home the point even further in verse 20. He lives in a gated community. There is a gate out front of his house. He does not have to worry in the middle of a Saturday hearing the knock on the door and trying to be sold some knives. He doesn't have to worry about any of those things. He is living a life of luxury. And then we see the distinction. From this man who's living a life of luxury to this homeless individual, this homeless man named Lazarus, who not only is he homeless and and poor, but he's covered with sores. So not only is he poor, but he's sick. And in that society, if you were sick, you were an outcast. So we have a poor beggar who is sick, who's an outcast of society, who lays at the gate of Lazarus's, or Lazarus lays at the gate of the rich man's house, ostracized from society. He's hungry. He doesn't want the leftovers from the rich man. He wants what happens when you go to the restaurant and you get the to-go box, and you're scraping the leftovers off the plate, and the fry falls off the plate, misses the box, and hits the floor. That's what Lazarus wants. He realizes the leftovers, those are going to go to the servants. Those are going to go to other people. He he doesn't even have a shot of getting the leftover to-go box. What he wants is the food that misses the to-go box and hits the floor. That's the contrast that Jesus has built for us here between the rich man and Lazarus. And not only is he homeless and poor, and not only is he sick and ostracized and alone, but it's so bad that even the dogs come and lick his sores. Now, this is, these are not your golden doodles. These are not the little golden doodle that you have that you love more than yourself house and that you take and you get it groomed regularly every couple of weeks and quite it's taken actually your spouse's spot in your bed you guys used to sleep together and then you got the dog now your spouse is in the guest room and the dog's next to you and you've got the bows Sunday they got a bow and, and Monday they got a bow and Tuesday they got a different bow and Wednesday they get to do an outfit change there's two different but I mean you've got a bow and a collar for this dog every single day they, they got to accessorize and you eat pop tarts and they're eating organic organic dog food. We're not talking about one of these situations with the little golden doodle who you love more than anybody in your family. We are talking about wild dogs that roam the city and aren't taken care of and go from place to place. And those dogs come up to Lazarus and lick his sores. This is a life of discomfort and misery. It is a life of isolation. We look at the rich man's life and we say, that would be a life of comfort. I would like that life. We look at Lazarus' life and we say, we would not want that. I mean, there's a couple people we may wish that life upon, but other than that, we wouldn't wish most people to experience the life that Jesus is describing Lazarus experiencing here. The contrast between the rich man and Lazarus could not be greater. We could not have two more radically different circumstances. Verse 22 says, the poor man died. 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So we're reminded here that death is not the end. And then what we see is this idea of sides. And one of them is defined as Abraham's side. And we remember from the Old Testament all the way back in in Genesis, we remember Abraham, that he is the forefather of faith. That God made a covenant, he made a promise with Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. Abraham is the forefather of our faith, which means the side that Abraham is on is the side for the faithful. And here, Lazarus, who is ostracized in society, who is poor and sick and neglected and, and, and destitute, he, when he dies, is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. This is fascinating. He's taken to the side of the faithful, which means if there are sides, there has to be division. Verse 22 and 23 say this, The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The rich man who had everything in life he could possibly want, he dies and where he's sent is not to the side of the faithful, but he is sent to the side of the faithless. That's where he's sent. And what we see of the side of the faithless that Jesus talks about, he calls it a place called Hades, and he reveals that it is a place of torment. And somehow, while he's there, the rich man can see Abraham, and he can see Lazarus. And he called out, verse 24 says, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man in agony remembers who Lazarus is, which means we will remember people from this life in eternity. The, the, the rich man is separated, but he looks across the chasm and he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus and he remembers Lazarus from lying at his gate. He has a recollection of who he is, which means in the life to come, we will remember things. We will remember people from this life. Have you ever wondered if when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll have to start all over and we won't have any recollection of people or things from, from this life? What or if it's going to be like it was when we were just little kids and we were having to learn everything for the very first time. Well, we are given an indication here from the teaching of Jesus that we're going to remember people, that we're going to remember people. As he looks over, he remembers Lazarus. We are going to remember people from this life. And again, we see the circumstances of the two sides are very very different. That in the side of the faithless, there is agony and there is suffering. In the side of the faithful, there is community going on. And what's interesting is the rich man now who wouldn't give Lazarus a crumb from his table, 
The rich man who wouldn't give Lazarus a crumb from his table is now begging that Lazarus would somehow dip the end of his finger in water and provide it to be a relief for the rich man. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Abraham tells the rich man about his life in such a way the rich man recalls details about his life. So not only are we going to know people and individuals from this life in the life to come, but we're going to remember details about this life. We're going to remember things about our lives in eternity. In heaven, we're going to look back and we're going to remember what occurred during our lives in the here and now. We will remember things about this life. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Remember, remember. Heaven is a place that's going to be full of community. It's going to be a place where we can, we can be reunited with people. It's going to be a place where you sit around, and it's going to be a reunion on steroids. And I know people don't do reunions anymore because social media messed that up because it messed up everything in the world. But back when people still did reunions, people would love to get together because they hadn't seen people in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And they go and they reminisce and they laugh about old times. They remember fondly memories and all of those things. And heaven is going to be a place for us to reconnect with people. It's going to be a place where we remember things. We remember people. And we remember things about this life. And besides all this, verse 26 says, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So there is a chasm that is fixed, which means the choices we make in this lifetime matter. The choices we make in this lifetime matter chiefly about whether or not we're going to follow Jesus. But as we saw last week, our choices in this life matter because we're going to give an account for the choices that we make. Make. Remember, our choices matter. And there is a chasm that is fixed, whether you are a side, whether on the side of the faithful through a relationship with Jesus, or whether you are on the side of the faithless with an absence of a relationship with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus provided the path. He provided the path for all of us to be with Him forever and ever. When He died on the cross and He rose again three days later. Now, you might have wondered, how did people in the Old Testament make it to heaven? How did people in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and, and paid the price for our sins, before he died for our sins and rose again three days later, how would people in the Old Testament make it to heaven? And remember, when Jesus is saying this, he has not yet died on the cross for the sins of the world and, and rose again. So how would people who are immediately hearing this, and how would people in the Old Testament make it to heaven? Well, in the same way we look back at the sacrifice of Jesus, we look back at what Jesus has done on our behalf, and as we looked at last week, it is by grace through faith that we look back and see what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, that he died on the cross for our sins, and he rose again three days later. We look back, people in the Old Testament would look forward. They would look forward to the coming of the Messiah. They would look forward to what Jesus would do. They would look forward to the fact that God would send the payment for sin and God would make everything right in the world. So the people in the Old Testament would look forward to what Jesus was about to do while we look back at what Jesus has already done 
for us. And he said, verse 27 says, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The rich man says, well, if you can't do anything for me because the chasm is fixed, if you can't do anything for me, then I am begging you, go do the supernatural. Go appear from the dead to my five brothers and tell them the truth. Tell them so they do not have to join me here in this place of torment. I don't want them here with me. Now, we've already seen that we're going to remember people. What this lets us know is that we'll remember people in our families, but I also believe this lets us know that we'll be able in some, somehow, in some way, to see in some regard what's happening in the lives of people in this world to some degree. Now, I know that sounds a little creepy and a little, like, a little freaking out, I, and I hope it's not a situation where People in heaven have 24-7 surveillance because, yeah, you know, I just, there's some things that I just, I just would rather do alone. Thank you very much. But, you know, I, I don't know if it's, we have no privacy, if they're able to see everything or if God gives them certain glimpses. I don't know what this looks like, but this idea that he is there and he's aware of the fact that he has five brothers and he's aware of the fact that they're all still living lets us know that in the afterlife, in the life to come, we're going to be able to look back and see glimpses of what's going on in this world. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's begging Abraham, go and perform the supernatural. Go tell them that they need to look for the Messiah. Go and make sure they understand how dire it is that they make the right choice. And Abraham's response is, they already have access to the truth. They already have access to the prophets. They already have access to Scripture. They already have access to the path to paradise. But the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What he's saying is they need more than Scripture. They need more than Scripture. They need the supernatural. And that's why I'm telling you always, always, always be incredibly cautious of anybody who would tell you that Scripture is not sufficient. Always be cautious of anybody who would tell you that they need more. They need the supernatural. I'm not saying God can't perform and God doesn't perform in miraculous ways. He does. He has and he does. But what I am telling you is be very leery of anybody who says Scripture isn't enough and I need more. Scripture is God's revealed word to us. It is God's heart for us. Scripture is all the proof we need. And what's fascinating is the response of Abraham. He says, if they won't listen to Scripture, if they won't listen to the truth of Scripture, then even the supernatural won't matter to them. He says that here in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Which causes us to ask a question. And this is a question that you have to answer individually. It's not a question that anybody else can answer for you. It's not a question that your parents can answer for you. It's not a, it's, it's not a question that, that the society around you can answer for you. The question is, have you, have you personally embraced the message and the hope that Scripture presents? 
Have you personally embraced the message of Jesus and the hope that Scripture presents? It doesn't matter what your mom or your dad or your grandma or your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your coworker or your neighbor. It doesn't matter any of those things. What matters is you personally. Have you personally responded to what the message of Scripture presents, the hope that we have in Jesus? Have you personally made that response? So, we look at this and we see that in the life to come, we're going to remember people. We're going to remember events from this world. We're going to see things that happen in this world. That the choices that we make in this life really matter. We see all these things from this passage, from this teaching of Jesus. And yet, we're, we've got to scratch our heads and we've got to say, well, while it doesn't have all the characteristics of a parable and while it has some characteristics that aren't found in any other parables, what if this is just a story? What if this is just a parable that Jesus is using? And what if, what if we can't know for sure? Thanks, Brian. This was really helpful. Thanks so much for that. Because what happens if this is just a parable? Then it's just an example. And it's just a story that Jesus is using to drive home some points. Well, first, the first thing we have to recognize is even if this is just a parable, even if this is just a parable, there are still themes that Jesus wants us to understand and conclusions that we need to draw from these truths. But I believe that Revelation 6 gives us a glimpse that these themes that we've talked about today, even if Luke 16 is a parable, are true. Now, admittedly, Revelation 6 is, is one of the, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult portion of Scripture to understand. Incredibly difficult. The Apostle John, under the guise of the Holy Spirit, has been given a glimpse at the end of the world, and there are some crazy things going on, and he's trying to, to convey to us, and it is, it, is hard to, it is hard to understand. But there are a couple verses I want us to look at in Revelation 6 and see implications that it has for heaven and the life to come. And how this can be a source of hope for us. So Revelation 6, 9 through 11 is what we're going to read today. And these are the words that we read there. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So in the midst of being given all these scenes of the end of the world, in the midst of that, we get to this scene in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, and I want to read verse 10 again for you. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Their question to God is, God, how long before you offer us retribution? Which means... If they're asking God that question, how long before you offer us retribution? 
they have a recollection of what happened to them. They remember the events of this life and this world. How long before you judge those on the earth? Meaning, they can see at least some of the events in this world. As they are asking God, how long are you going to let the wickedness of this world, how long are you going to allow that to to occur? Meaning they can get a glimpse, they can see what is happening in this world. It's interesting in verse 11, they're given a white robe. This is one of the reasons I personally believe that heaven is more than just a spiritual place. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that definitively, but I believe we will, have, we will have bodies in heaven as well. And one of the reasons for that is they're given a robe. Now, maybe if it's a spiritual place, we all have holograms and we can show people we have like a holographic sticker of a robe or something. I don't know. But it, to me, it seems to make a lot more sense that they're given robes because there is a body of some kind that they will, that they will wear that robe in. And here's... What also is there very interesting in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That their brothers would be complete and they would be killed as the martyrs as people killed for being, being followers of Jesus had been killed. See, we're not talking about evil people being killed here in this context of verse 11. We're talking about people who follow Jesus being killed and God allowing it to happen. And this forces us to come to the difficult truth that should be hopeful but also can be tough to swallow. Because some people have been dealt a hand that they wouldn't wish upon anybody. And you've been dealt a really rough hand. And life is incredibly difficult. And what's hard is that we know that God could take it in an instant if He so desired. He's powerful enough. He is able But for whatever reason, God hasn't. We know that God could prevent the killing of all these martyrs. And God could prevent the killing of the martyrs who have not yet been slaughtered. And yet, for some reason, God chooses not to. So where's the hope in that? Well, the hope in that is found right here. That the plan that God has for us extends beyond this life. The plan that God has for us extends beyond these bodies, that these bodies will decay and we will all die. But the hope that we have as followers of Jesus is the plan that God has for us extends beyond this world. It extends beyond the here and now. And that God's purposes and God's plans for us are so much greater than the temporal nature of this life. So what do we do with all this? First, we just need to remember that relationships matter. People matter. Relationships matter. And we need to be people who love people. 
We need to be people who serve people. We need to be people who encourage people. We need to be engaged in other people's lives. We need to serve. We, we just need to be people who live our lives being constantly reminded that other people matter. They matter to God, and they need to matter to us. That relationships matter. Second, our choices matter. Our choices matter, chiefly our choice on who we decide Jesus is and whether or not we're going to follow him. But extending beyond that, the choices we make in this life matter. And lastly, let's just become people who are just resolved to leave legacies that we look back at one day and the reunion of heaven when we think about the relationships and we recognize people in heaven, when we think about the choices we made in this world as we look back at the lives that we spent here, and let's be people who are just resolved to leave the best legacy we possibly can leave. Let's be people who live our lives in such a way that we encourage other people and we love other people and we serve other people so that one day when other people see us in heaven and they think back and they remember us, there is joy and there's excitement. Let's make sure we live our lives in such a way that we leave legacies that we're proud of, that when we think about what we did in this life and we think about how we spent our time in this world, We aren't overcome with regret. That we live each day like each day matters. That every person we encounter, whether they're the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor, whether society would say they're the most influential and they're the most important, or society would say they're an outcast who doesn't even matter. Let's make sure that as people who follow Jesus, we make sure to model the love of Jesus to everybody that we encounter and we treat everybody the same because the rich man had a soul, and Lazarus had a soul, and you have a soul, and I have a soul, and President Biden has a soul, and Jeff Bezos has a soul, and the homeless man in Milwaukee whose name you will never know has a soul, and the drug addict in Green Bay that you will never meet has a soul, and every soul matters to God. which means it needs to matter to us. And let's live our lives valuing relationships, making wise choices, pointing everybody we can to Jesus, and seeing the value that everyone has because they matter to God, and thus they must matter to us. Jesus, thank you for the hope of heaven. Thank you for the fact that your plan for us extends beyond the temporal nature of this life. That while the bodies we are in will decay and be destroyed, your plans for us do not end at death. What a sobering scene to see today of someone who had it all And yet, God, at the time of death, 
had nothing. And someone who had nothing, who was overlooked and an outcast, to die and be granted everything. We thank you, Jesus, for offering us redemption and hope because of what you accomplished on our behalf. Because none of us measure up to your standard of perfection, and yet your love for us remains, so you met the standard we couldn't meet. Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of just how incredible your love for us is. And it would motivate us to serve the poorest of the poor as well as the richest of the rich. That it would motivate us to serve the sick as well as the healthy. Serve the starving as well as the well-fed. To serve those isolated and alone, as well as those most popular and connected. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us hope. We thank you that your plans for us extend. And I pray, God, that we would just live, making the most of every single day that we have to love others and serve others, be kind to others, be gracious to others, and to point all to you. That's our prayer, Jesus. Use us for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.